0: Well, good morning. You can have a seat. Hal, thanks for your introduction uh, a few minutes ago. My name is Ben Coppage. I'm the RUF campus minister here at University of Georgia. Um, you you should know. I guess you've heard a lot about uh, what RUF's here to do. We're simply uh, all of you who know the Lord and are united to Him by faith. It started with somebody: Sunday school teacher when you're a kid, a coach, a parent, a sibling, a friend in college, a coworker late in life. Someone had to meet you where you are. Uh, that's the predicament of humanity. We're stuck right where we are. And if help doesn't come to us, we're not getting help. And so uh, it's not just that God is a God who meets us at our coordinates, but his church has to, too. And so our RUF is here not just to geographically meet UGA where it is, uh, but to meet uh, people wherever they are, whether it's a place of desire to grow, place of doubt, place of cynicism, boredom, ready to chuck everything, already chucked everything, Uh, that's why we're here. We are an expression of the churches in Athens taking responsibility to love the campus and to bring students back, to not leave them stuck there, uh, but to prepare them for where 70 years of their life will take place, which is the church, not the campus. So thank you for your support of RUF. This morning, we're not going to be in the regular series, The Gospel of John, Uh, We're going to look at a little piece of the prophecy in Ezekiel, but this, what we're going to talk about this morning, fits very carefully with what Todd talked about last week and what's going to keep coming up more and more in John's gospel now. And that theme is God's reputation and our redemption. The two are inextricably linked. God's name, his reputation, and your redemption And uh, that's what this passage is about. A little bit of context before I read it. Maybe a sentence of context. What's going down in what we're about to read happened right after God had evicted his people out of the promised land for breach of contract. uh, As any landlord will do when you turn their house into Skid Row. And so God had evicted his people into Babylon. This is what comes next. They're wondering, what just happened? Why did it happen? And listen as I read to God's concern for His reputation, it's Ezekiel thirty-six, starting in verse sixteen. It's in your bulletin. The word of the Lord, or the word of Yahweh, came to me. Ezekiel is saying, "Son of man, when the house of Israel lived in their own land in the promised land, they defiled it by their ways and their deeds. Their ways before me were like the uncleanness of a woman in her menstrual impurity." And so I poured out my wrath upon them for the blood that they had shed in the land, for the idols with which they had defiled it. I scattered them among the nations, and they were dispersed through the countries. In accordance with their ways and their deeds, I judged them. But when they came to the nations, wherever they came, they profaned or they unholied my holy name, So that the people said, These are the people of Yahweh, and yet they had to leave his land. But I, I had concern for my holy name, which the house of Israel had unholied among the nations to which they came. Therefore, Ezekiel, say to the house of Israel, Say to my people, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O Israel, that I am about to act. But it's for the sake of my holy name, which you have unholied among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been unholied among the nations, and which you have unholied among them. And then, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. When, here's the gospel, when through you. I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and I will bring you to your own land and I'll sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all of your uncleanness. From all of your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you will be my people and I will be your God. Let's pray. Father, anytime anyone, any of us stand up here, we're confronted with the weakness My voice can't accomplish anything. I can't even get my two- and three-year-old to obey with my voice. Bad things come out of my mouth, good things, unhelpful things, helpful things. But out of your mouth comes only truth, only goodness, only what is helpful, only what is pure, and your word is powerful. Your voice says syllables, and universes come to existence, and dead people rise, And guilty people are innocent, and so I call upon you, we ask you now, to let it be your voice. We don't need my voice, we need your voice, the voice of power, the voice of truth. So do that we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well think about this, a name, your name, carries precious cargo. When you hear a name, think about your husband or your wife or your son, or your daughter, or um, a pastor. Think about a politician, Trump, or Bernie, or a name like Hal, or Matt. When you hear a name, sometimes one syllable, what comes to your mind is not the sound of the name. What you immediately think about is a constellation of thoughts and memories And personality characteristics, traits, history you have with that person, all of their reputation you immediately think about when you hear that one little name. And so names are like Trojan horses. One little sound carries inside of it all of what makes you, you. So much so that we could say in a sense you are your name. L.M. Montgomery, uh, of Rodan of Green Gables, uh, said, I've read in a book once that a rose by any other name would smell just as sweet. I've never been able to believe it. I don't believe a rose would smell as sweet if it was called a thistle or a skunk cabbage. You wouldn't be you with some other name. Ladies, you get this better than the guys. Some of you have, your name has changed. And for months, someone calls you Mrs. Smith and you don't turn around and, you're, and there's this like mini identity crisis. Wait a minute, who am I? I don't even know how to sign my name. Or if you've ever had a friend or a kid uh, change their name or want to go by their nickname and you're like, but, but you're not that. You're this name that we've always known you by. You are your name and you wouldn't be you with any other name. And because we are so tied to our name, Ben, When you speak well of my name, you speak well of me. You exalt me. When you speak poorly of my name, you speak poorly of me. You diminish me. The Bible's always talked about gossip as murder. Gossip is taking someone's life away. Slander is murder. Even in our cultural moment, moving towards this kind of anything goes mentality, you be you, it is still A civil offense. You can wind up before a judge in a robe being sued for millions of dollars and have tens of thousands of dollars in legal fees simply for speaking poorly of a person's name. That happens every day. This is serious stuff. Even in our cultural moment, even when other things fade fade away, we know that names matter. Names are sticky things. If you have your name as... uh, Part of your medical practice, your law firm, or you're a small business owner, and your name is on that truck that drives around, you know how much you fight to protect the reputation of your company. And you know how hard it is to undo that Yelp review or the Google review that's attacking the name and the integrity of your business because you don't get another name. You can't just rebrand. Names are sticky things. Bill Cosby. Kevin Spacey. For worse. For better, we just spent a week as a nation memorializing John McCain. Stuff he did decades and decades and decades ago in Vietnam is still stuck to his name and always will be. Your name has stuck to it like velcro all of what you've done, all of what you've not done, all of who you are, for better and for worse. And so to review, names are, they encapsulate all of who you are, they carry inside of that all of who you are, your reputation, and they're sticky. For better and for worse, stuff sticks to it. And you become known by your name, and you only get one of them. So here's the new element to what we're talking about God has a name too. And so everything that we've just talked about, if it's true, applies to his name as well. His name is sticky, his reputation is attached to his name. In some sense, he is his name. Uh, Moses asks, who sh- in, in Exodus, who shall we say sent, who shall I say sent me? And he says, I am Yahweh, sent you. Tell the people my name. And it's even more significant that he tells Moses his name, because telling someone your name is an even more significant thing than having a name. In front of your bullets in this Frederick Biekner quote, Biechner nails this. He says, when I tell you my name, I've given you a hold over me that you didn't have before. When you call out my name, Ben, I stop, I turn, I look, I listen, whether I want to or not. He says in Exodus, God told Moses his name, and God hasn't had a peaceful moment since. Now, lest we think that God's kind of slowly stapping a hello, my name is sticker on his chest so his people know kind of Uh, The informational status of who who are we dealing with here. Telling someone your name is not just an informational transaction. It's a deeply personal moment. God is not just telling Israel, I'm not John, I'm not Matt, I'm this. He is giving them his name. He is placing his name on his people, which is a really, really, really big deal. Because names are what we've said they are. God is... This God, the God of Israel, has put his name on the land. This is Yahweh's land. And all the nations know it. There's evidence of that in the passage. These are Yahweh's people, Israel. Everybody in the ancient world knows they're his people. These are his promises. This is his covenant. His name is attached to all of it. Which means, and if this is true for us, Christian, that God has not just shared his name with you that you can talk to him. He has placed his name on you. If this is true, then isn't the weight of the world suddenly upon every action, every word, every anonymous action, every public action, well, it was for Israel. And Ezekiel, I know I'm not making this up. If you're still wondering, is he making this up? In this book, in this prophecy, Ezekiel, 60 times, 60, goes off on a little side excursions about God's care. For the holiness, the purity of his name. It's an obsession of this book, of Ezekiel, talking to his people. And the question throughout the book is a question that we're kind of familiar with too, existentially. The question is, what is God going to do about his reputation? Because his people have run it through the mud have drug it through the Israelite gutters, have drug it through the Babylonian gutters. His name has been sullied. His reputation has been damaged. What is he going to do about that dilemma? And it's a burning question. Israel's name, or, or God's name, better yet, had become a laughing stock by the time this, these events are happening. And here's why. Um, do you remember why God said he was redeeming Israel? He tells us the reason. He says, uh, even to Abraham, I am blessing you to be a blessing to the nations. Uh, I am setting you aside as my people, that you might gather my people, that you might be a light to the nations. Uh, Some of you live in apartment complexes, condos, and if you have, probably at some point during the leasing process, they took you to a model unit. Or if you've bought a new neighborhood, uh, there's a model home in these neighborhoods, and you're like, why did this builder drop... $300,000 to build a house no one lives in. Well, the reason why is because the way they know that house is a billboard for you. It's intended for you to come inside, to smell the house, to feel the house, to look at the crown molding, to run your hands over the granite, to feel the quality of the hardware, and to come to the conclusion I want this guy to build my house too. I want this house. This feels like home. This isn't cheaply thrown together. That's what the church is called to be. That's what Israel is always called to be, the model home for this world, that the world might come in, as it were, sit for a second, taste, smell, hear, see, and come to the conclusion, I want that. I want him. Well, what Israel had done to the model home is what we're very familiar with, Israel had turned this model home into what my fraternity house smelled like on Saturday mornings. As a pledge, we had to be there at 6 a.m. Saturday mornings to clean up what everyone had done the night before, and those smells and the staleness and the odor and the stickiness of the floor was disgusting to clean up and to smell. And Israel had turned the model home of promised land into animal house. Israel had turned the model home into the cat lady's house. It always makes the news. I don't know why this still makes the news. A woman living with 30 cats in squalor. Like people in hazmat suits are there to, to, to get the cats out. Well, that's a fitting metaphor because what Ezekiel's doing here, he uses two, two different metaphors. One hits you right when you start reading it. Uh, and, he, and, he, and he uses this symbolic language of, of impurity that was unique to this moment in time. But he says something else that we might not catch because we don't speak Hebrew. But when he says that Israel filled the land with idols, the term that he uses there is for piles of rocks, which was an idiom in that day for piles of excrement. So when I say that Israel has turned the model home into the cat lady's house, that is the perfect Metaphor for what Ezekiel said our unholiness and our idolatry does. Have you ever been in someone's backyard who has a few dogs? It is not a place you want to be. That place is a landmine. It smells bad, it looks bad, you're like watching every step. That is what God's billboard to the world this is who I am, this is what I'm like, that's what it had become. And so the question is, what is this God going to do? Israel pursued that life for the same reason we pursue our idols, which are really a way to make an uncontrollable God controllable, a way to bring the invisible God and make him visible in any other way other than Jesus, to manifest the presence and power and goodness of God through some created object. Israel tried to do that too. The promise of idolatry is always, you get the model home, the best house in the street, and it always leaves you in the cat lady's house. So Israel pursued that life for those reasons. God alone is able to see what's going down here and it's repugnant to him because this stuff goes on year after year. It gets so bad that the Israelites start thinking, well, another way to control the uncontrollable God and to bring his power and his goodness and his presence down in a more manifest way is we'll sacrifice our children. That's another way we can manipulate him, like all of our idolatry is trying to manipulate God. And so when Ezekiel says I hold this against you, the blood that you have spilled on the land. He's talking about you have sacrificed your own children trying to twist my arm to do stuff for you. And he doesn't put up with this. So he says, get out. Get out. Because this is my land. The the, the chapter all leading up to this is God's concern, not for his name, but his land, his house. This new Eden, which had become just as disgusting as the old Eden after the fall. And uh, you know things have gotten bad when the nations, the way the Bible talks about them, when those who have rejected God and said, this is hogwash, who's this Yahweh? Forget about that. The Babylonian God is God or the Greek God is God. You know it's bad when they are the ones pointing at the church saying, what's wrong with y'all? Are you serious? Which is what they do? The nations say, this is, these are Yahweh's people and they, he couldn't even keep them in the land. Our God is powerful. Our Marduk or whoever they were worshiping, our God is the supreme God. He is the real God. This God, this, this God couldn't even keep his people safe from our armies. Which creates this interesting dilemma because God's people in God's land was a problem for his reputation and so they're evicted, they go to Babylon, and guess what? There, God says, you unholied my holy name there too. The problem doesn't go away because they get relocated uh, and being disciplined. And the problem with all of this is that God has put his name on all of this stuff, on this land, on his people, on his promises. He has shared his name, and, and, and his people who bear his name of unholyed his holy name. Uh, you couldn't have missed that repeti- repetition. It happened like... Seven or eight times. Almost to the point you're like, is Ben forgetting to move on to the next sentence? Did he just accidentally reread the previous sentence? No. God says that, that repeatedly. You unholied my holy name. You unholied my holy name. You unholied my holy name. And so the people are sent into exile where the problem only gets worse. And the question then becomes this. And this is what all of us, whether you are a uh, someone who... Knows you're a Christian, someone who doesn't know what you are, someone who knows you're not a Christian, regardless of your background. All of us carry around the question inside of us, what does God think when he thinks about me? What is God going to do when he sees me as I actually really am? Which only he sees, nobody else sees you as you actually are. What's he going to think? What's he going to do? What's he going to say we're very suspicious of what he's going to do, think, and say in those moments because uh, I don't know about it, if it's our cultural moment. I think it's just human, human history. It's humanity. We see what happens, for instance, when corporate spokespeople, something from their past is dredged out. And I'm not in any way condoning any of these things these people have done, but you know what happens. Spokesman for this company or that company does something that brings shame upon the company. They're fired with a tweet immediately. We, we repudiate everything that this person has done. We have no relationship with this person anymore. We condemn in the strongest terms possible this person and what they have done. This company stands for something so much better. Is God going to do that with you? Wouldn't it make sense that he does? And me too? My goodness. Wouldn't it make sense he does the corporate stiff arm? The way the company protects its reputation is by cutting off Anything that sullies the reputation and pushing it away. Well, this is the this is the astonishing thing here. And if you don't appreciate the irony of it, you miss the gospel in this passage. Because until you get to a point of saying nothing in me would expect him to to do anything but push his people away and say, "Uh-uh, these aren't my people. This is not what I stand for. This is not what I'm about." He does the opposite. He does the. God pulls the source of his ridicule closer. And this is amazing. The epicenter of the problem, he pulls deeper into his house, more closely associated with his name. He doubles down on, is it since the bad deck of cards he has? His people. And in in explaining why he's doing this and how he's doing this, he does something called unbalancing the truth. This is what parents are experts in. Um, Every time your kid needs to be disciplined, you don't have time in that moment to share with them the entire context of what you think and feel about them. Sometimes you say, go to your room. We're done. You can't take your entire relationship with your son or daughter and extrapolate it from just those few words. You are unbalancing a piece of the truth. Yes, you love your son and daughter. Yes, you want them to be with you. Yes, you want a harmonious relationship. Yes, you're for them. Yes, you've sacrificed to them. But in that moment, do they need to hear the whole story or a piece of the story? Go to your room. That is not acceptable in this house. You unbalance the truth. You take out one strand of the truth and highlight it for the needs of that moment. God is doing that when he says, Israel, it is not for your sake, but for my sake, that I am redeeming you. That does not mean that God does not love us. It does not mean that he's not for us. It means that there are moments in our lives where we need to be deflated and him inflated, not to simply who he is. We get to this point, our idolatry schools us in having a tiny little God that we can put on a shelf and move around and and relate to when we want to. And in that stupor, in that delusion, in that insanity, God is saying, no, 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 don't you think, don't you think uh, that my redemption of you is some reward of what you've been doing. It is for my sake, because I put my name on you. That is why I am sanctifying my name through sanctifying you. And that's the point of this, is that God will rebuild his reputation by repairing By restoring those who destroyed his reputation. Let that sink in. The way this God is redeeming his reputation is by redeeming those who ruined his reputation. Which is to say this. The gospel is good news for us. And the gospel is good news for God. The gospel is the vindication of sinners, of his people. And the gospel is the vindication of God's reputation. And he has tied those two things so tightly together that him pursuing the restoration of his reputation is him pursuing your redemption. One drives the other. They're simultaneous. And this is what God is saying here. He says, when I act, when I do this, when I vindicate my name through my people, then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, the life giver, the sovereign God, the supreme God, the only God, the truth teller, the friend of sinners, the pursuer of the lost. Then they will know when I vindicate you. Or you could say it this way, the way that god cleanses his name in this world is the gospel and that adds a dimension of our understanding and adds a, a instead of a two-dimensional gospel a three-dimensional gospel we're getting in four and five and six dimensions of depth of why god has done what he's done it is not this simplistic thing of god felt so sorry for me and he just sprang into action out of his you know out of his compassion It is so deep, so sophisticated, so varied, his motivations to move into redeeming us. And so, did God send Jesus into the world to rescue us because he loved the world? Yes, he says as much over and over and over again. God loves this world he made and he's committed to it and his image bearers. But is he also saying that he sent Jesus into the world to hallow his name? Yes, 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 yes. And that is exactly what Hal read earlier and what will come up again in a couple of weeks and again in a few more weeks as we go through John. Jesus himself says, and by the way, you know when a person is in their last few words before they die, you know it's important stuff at that point, right? You would expect, do you have any last words? Or someone's, you know, the the day before they're executed, you would expect the things they're thinking, the things they're saying, are of a more profound variety, are maybe arising more from the core of their being instead of flippant thoughts. This is what Jesus says in that moment, what is most deeply embedded in him before he is arrested and eventually crucified. And he says this, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. And then a voice comes from heaven as if to say, oh, my beloved Jesus, I am. I have. I will. Because this cup will not pass from you. This is where the paradox and the irony gets even deeper and more complex, that on the cross, what is happening, what explains the things that Scripture draws our attention to in that that moment, is that Jesus has yielded himself to the derision and the blasphemy of the world. God in the flesh has yielded himself knelt down before the mockery and the ridicule and the derision and the dismissiveness of the world. And here's where these themes kind of all intersect. Has there ever been a time when the name of God was more unholied, was more ridiculed, more spat upon, more dismissed as nothing, Then when the Son of God is naked, striving to get a breath, under a sign in every language of everyone there that says, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, has there ever been a moment of greater irony between the name of God on a placard and the reputation of God submitted? Submitted? to utter dismissiveness. We know what the people who were there said. This is the Son of God? Look at Him. Are you kidding? There were little kids spitting on God in the flesh. There were arrogant old men who thought they knew everything, spitting, mocking. And don't you know there were people who didn't even show up for the crucifixion? I got a three o'clock. I can't make that. Maybe next week's crucifixions. It was that shameful we imagine it as this cosmic moment where everyone in the world's gathering around look at Jesus of Nazareth. No, this was a bureaucratic job on a Friday afternoon. Hey guys, we got 3 today. Go go get this done. No one This was a this was a to-do list someone got done. And it's driven by I want to be home for dinner with my family, right? They break the guy's legs. Let's speed this up. Come on. I'm not getting overtime today. It is that shameful It draws that derision, that mockery in that moment. Get this. The name of God is thrown away in the gutter. And the name of Barabbas is precious to the people. Give us Barabbas. Give us Barabbas. This Jesus, kill him. Peter will not own his name. The disciples will not be associated with his name. It is that shamed, that disgusting. Friends, what you see is the gospel here that God has yielded himself. He has taken upon himself the blasphemy. He has taken upon himself the shame that we have rightly brought upon his name. And he has stepped into the gap, and he has intercepted the darts that are aimed at the reputation that we ruined with our refusal to love our city, with our contentment and political power, with our refusal to reconcile and to hold grudges against each other. All of the shame that is worthy of those things has to go somewhere. And he says, bring it here. And what comes out of that moment is he says, I will sprinkle you with clean water and I will clean your uncleanness and I will not just give you my name and I will not just give you my vindicated name. I will give you my spirit so that you begin to love me, so that you begin to love my name, so that you begin to hallow my name just as Jesus who I unite you to hallows my name, so that you begin to be driven in life by glorifying the Father's name, and being this model home, in a sense. God ultimately bears the shame of his people, and he says, I will vindicate my name by vindicating you. And he vindicates Jesus in that moment, too. Philippians 2 captures this. Therefore, God exalted Jesus to the highest place and gave him, Jesus, the name that is above every name, That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Friends, do you see how your microscopic baby steps of repentance, the tiniest thing that even your spouse doesn't notice because they're so pitifully weak and unnoticeable, but they're tiny steps forward? Do you see how God himself, through you in those moments, is redeeming his reputation? Do you see the smile on his face? Do you hear heaven cheering you on as you do go and reconcile? As you do say, maybe this is the year I need to start caring about the place God has me living. Do you see, in all of these moments, God vindicating His name. Do you understand better now why he says he'll finish the work he started in you? Because his name's on the line. His reputation's on the line. That what John said in his last letter will be true. That when you see him, you will be like him. When you see Jesus, you will be like Jesus. Yes, because he loves you. Yes, because he's faithful. Yes, because he's a friend of sinners. And yes, because he has successfully hallowed his name in space and in time, in the beginning in this life, in you. And I think that's a deeper gospel and a better gospel. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you have hallowed the Father's name, and that in hallowing your Father's name and restoring his reputation, somehow we were caught up in that. That was our redemption. You Going to the cross to glorify your Father's name was you going to the cross to die for your people, that your spirit might be poured out upon us and that we might become new people that the world looks like and says, I want whoever made you like this, I want that builder Spirit of God, come and be powerful and do these very things. Help us to notice the baby steps, the tiny microscopic moments of repentance and faith, and to know that you are pleased with us in those moments, not upset, not disappointed. Help us to hear you and see your smile. We pray in Christ's name, amen.